Our hearts are kind of heavy coming into today, aren't they? Um, and I, I would like, uh, with the time that we have uh, this morning, to talk about some of the events of this past week, if I can go ahead and get the uh, PowerPoint. I had a sermon uh, prepared for today um, on Jesus' view of children, uh, which would have been the last installment in our Back to Basics series. Um, but as the week wore on, I came into the office Friday, and it just uh, seemed more appropriate that we just uh, take some time uh, talking about the tsunami disaster that has rocked and devastated uh, Southeast uh, Asia and try to process that a little bit uh, together. Um, for those of you that um, uh, maybe have not been reading any newspapers um, or watching any television, which I don't think probably is any of you, uh, there was a massive earthquake that struck in Southeast Asia and it was a 9.0 according to the uh, Richter scale measurements and the earthquake itself, they say, was um, uh, the energy that was released from the earthquake was so powerful that there were headlines the following day that read, Killer Quake Rattled Earth's Orbit. Uh, perhaps uh, you read that, but the Earth actually wobbled on its axis as a result of the energy that was released uh, from the quake. And when I say wobbled, I don't mean anyone would have been able to visually observe that. Uh, geophysicists said that Earth is now tilting 2.5 centimeters more on its axis than it was before the quake. Uh, so that's not statistically very significant, but we're talking about, I mean, the Earth is pretty big, and an earthquake like this to move the Earth on its axis to that degree uh, must be a huge amount of energy. And our days are actually shorter by three microseconds. Uh, at this point uh, because of the earthquake uh, as well. So it was a massive earthquake and not only um, what I just mentioned, but it altered the regional map of Southeast Asia. Uh, islands um, uh, in some territories have moved by 66 feet and one region actually moved 100 feet in the northern part of Indonesia, real near where the uh, epicenter of the earthquake uh, was. Uh, in addition to all of that, the tsunamis that were created uh, by the, the force of the quake and the movement uh, of, of the earth um, just uh, coming into various shores of various countries in Southeast Asia uh, just wreaked havoc. Um, and the loss of life by the last count I checked on the internet this morning is close to 150,000 people and the number seems to be climbing every day, and uh, there's little doubt in anyone's mind that the number is going to be going uh, higher uh, than that. Not only 5 million, or not only 150,000 people that uh, have been killed by the tsunamis, but there's also the existing threat of disease and pestilence uh, and starvation um, right now, and 5 million people have been rendered homeless uh, as a result of, of this disaster. And to kind of put that into perspective, you guys remember uh, back at September 11th of 2001 when the terrorists uh, struck the towers in New York City and the Pentagon 
Uh, the total loss of life on that day from those attacks in Pennsylvania, and where the plane went down, and at the Pentagon, all those on the planes and in the towers in New York City, the total loss of life was just under 3,000 people. And you guys remember how gripped uh, we all were by just the sheer loss of life uh, on that day. But we're dealing with an event that happened last Sunday that has taken at least 150,000 lives. Uh, so that is uh, September the 11th, 2001, multiplied many times over. And it's just difficult, really, to wrap our minds around uh, the staggering death toll uh, that we keep hearing about in the news. To put this tsunami into perspective as well, um, historians say that the deadliest tsunami uh, prior to last Sunday uh, was a tsunami that occurred in 1883 in the same part of the world. And the death toll from that tsunami was 36,000 people. And that was the deadliest tsunami in recorded uh, world history. 36,000 people were killed by that. And we're dealing here with an event that happened last Sunday that so far, by best counts, have killed at least 150,000 people. So this is the worst tsunami disaster uh, multiplied many times uh, over. And already um, uh, there are people of various religious faiths that are doing their best to process uh, the events that have transpired. I was reading an article this week uh, by uh, where they were quoting from some Hindus that suggested that the reason that the tsunami hit India is because the Indian government arrested a major Hindu leader. And so this is the judgment of the gods on India for the, the government for making that arrest. And there's other people of other faiths that are um, trying to process this and figure out why in the world would something like this happen uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, also, people in our country are trying to process these events. I heard two talk radio programs this week, maybe you did, where the question of the hour was, where was God uh, when these events uh, took place? And both of those programs, uh, the talk show host took the opportunity to essentially blaspheme uh, the true and the living God, and to belittle the faith of people like you and me who would continue to believe in a God who would allow things like this to happen. I was listening to one of these um, talk show hosts that was uh, suggesting, he was saying, I don't understand how you evangelical Christians can even believe in a God that would allow disasters uh, like this to happen. And he actually called on all evangelical Christians uh, across the country to boycott church this Sunday. And he says, I'm not being facetious. I really think you guys ought to do that as a protest to your deity to send a message to him that, you know what, we love you, we want to serve you, uh, and we're living up to our end of the deal, trying to do whatever you tell us to do, but it's time for you to begin living up to your end of the bargain. If you are a savior, it's time you start doing some saving. And I've never heard some of the language that I heard um, coming from this guy. He said, he said, you Christians, you call yourself the bride of Christ. In my opinion, you're a battered spouse. And you're battered by your deity, and yet you keep coming back to him, and you love him, and you worship him, 
And when anything good happens, you say, well, praise God, I thank God. When something bad happens, you say, well, it's not God's fault, it's our fault. And what amazed me even more was some of the people who called into the program, um, people who have no knowledge of the true and the living God. Um, uh, some of them were disagreeing with him, but he got a lot more support than even he was expecting. He thought people would call in outraged, and really no one was outraged. They all basically agreed with him, but there were few people that tried to modify his thinking. And there were silly ideas, like one guy called in and said, to me, he says, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in the Bible. To me, God is like electricity. And he's neither good nor evil, he's just a force, and it's a matter of what we plug into uh, this force that makes uh, this force good or evil in our lives. And others called in uh, to say, you know what, don't blame God for what happened here. God had nothing to do with this. God is not involved in and the processes of nature in this way. So there were people going to the other extreme, uh, just saying God had absolutely nothing to do with uh, these events. And so as I was listening to those types of things and also reading the newspapers and information on the internet, it's very clear that an event of this magnitude is at least turning people's thoughts to God and asking some basic fundamental uh, philosophical and theological questions about life and about death and about God and about the problem of evil and suffering that we have in our world today. Uh, some of the secular uh, news programs, uh, there were a few times I heard this week um, secular reporters describe the events uh, using the adjective apocalyptic. Um, you know, these events are apocalyptic and uh, a couple reporters even use the word biblical. This is a tragedy of biblical proportions in trying to give description to the immensity of the tragedy in Southeast Asia. And so clearly people's thoughts are turning in these directions and perhaps yours uh, have as well. And so uh, what I wanna do is just take a little bit of time to process um, this together. There's really no way, and I feel overwhelmed um, and even being able to give an adequate response to this because I feel like I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it and I feel very small and just being able to, um, uh, to respond to these events, the carnage, the death. It's just, um, you know, one of the stories I read was of a, of a parent who was trying his best to save two of his children and at one point he knew that he couldn't and he had to make a choice to let one of them go. And I just, you know, I, I was imagining me in that situation with, uh, with my children and, and seeing one of my children just that I'm letting go. I just, and, and those types of stories and tragedies and pain and suffering and loss are just multiplied by the thousands. And there's no way, uh, I, don't, I don't think we're wired to really fully take all of that in and fully feel uh, all of that pain. Even our president yesterday in his radio address said that the carnage is of a scale that defies comprehension. We just can't, we can't uh, fully fathom it. And he said that as he was announcing a proclamation that he had signed that this week, you'll notice that uh, flags, uh, the American flag will be flying at half staff uh, wherever you see it flying uh, this week by the order of our, of our president. So how do we respond to, to an event of this magnitude? How do we give an answer to uh, people who ask us for the reason of the hope uh, that lies within us? And I want to suggest, I think there's a total of four responses, and these are not even 
uh, exhaustive, but the first response um, that I would suggest for all of us in responding to this tragedy is that we remember some biblical truths that um, I know whenever things like this happen, September 11th, uh, a disaster like this, um, in my mind, uh, there are just certain biblical truths that I always go back to, and it doesn't provide answers for all of the questions, uh, but it gets me by and uh, provides an enormous amount of comfort and actually turns my thoughts to God to worship Him and to fear Him all the more. Guys, we, we think sometimes we have God figured out. Um, none of us would say we have that entirely, but sometimes we think we kind of know the way God works, and then things like this happen, and we realize we're dealing with the deity of immense power, unimaginable authority. He can do as He pleases, and, and we don't know uh, the reasons why. And if you're expecting me to explain why this morning, I won't be doing that. Uh, but we can go back to some basic biblical truths, and I want to share seven of those with you. Truth number one that we want to remember is that God is sovereign and has every right to do as He pleases amongst the inhabitants of the earth. Um, he doesn't need to ask our permission. Every Christian can boycott church this Sunday. doesn't matter to God. He is sovereign and does as He pleases, and no amount of protesting or complaining or asking why is going to alter uh, his sovereignty uh, in any way, shape, or form. In Daniel chapter 4, uh, verses 34 and 35, uh, speaking of God, it says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? I mean, when God is going to do something, you can't stop his hand and say, wait, first, um, you know, get my permission or first explain what you're doing and give me all the reasons why. What are you doing here? No, God's hand, he is so powerful that if all of the might in the created universe went against his hand as it goes to move, it, it wouldn't even stop or slow him down at all. His power is unimaginable. He is sovereign. He does as he pleases. We can't stop his hand. And, and even ask him to give an explanation or demand an explanation for what he is doing. So God is sovereign. He does as he pleases. A second truth we want to remember is that God is in complete control over the forces of nature which do us good and bring us harm. Um, and hopefully that's not a shattering truth to any of you. Uh, God is not the God of the deist who just kind of winds up the clock and he's disconnected and and kind of leaves us to ourselves. The Bible teaches that God created all things, and in Him all things consist, and He holds together everything, every atom in the universe by the word of His power, according to Hebrews chapter, chapter 1. So God is intricately involved in, in every atom that exists in our universe, and all of the forces of nature that do us good, that bring us harm, God is the one who activates all of that, and is active in them. Uh, kind of on a more positive note, in Matthew 5, 45, uh, Jesus says, He, God, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. It's not just the sun rises because it's supposed to rise. No, He causes the sun. He is continuously causing the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rains 
on the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't rain just because it rains and it's a natural thing to happen. God sends sunshine and he sends uh, the rain. He's in total control uh, over such things. That's why when we go to eat a meal, we give thanks to him. We receive it with thanks because we're thanking him for providing that meal. That's why Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. The only reason we would ask that in prayer is because God is the one who is intimately involved in the provision of every item of food that we eat and all of the natural processes that are necessary to the growing of that food so that we would have uh, something to eat. When it comes to the oceans, does God control the seas? Isaiah 51, 15 I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. As powerful and immense as the ocean is, God has total power uh, over the seas. If uh, you want proof of that, just uh, ask Jonah when you get to heaven if God controls the, the seas. Uh, and Jonah would tell you a story. And uh, in that story, it says in Jonah 1.4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. And as soon as they threw Jonah overboard, what happened? God calmed uh, the storm that was in the sea. Even the Bible teaches that not only does God control the ocean and the seas, but even the boundaries. God's the one who sets the boundaries uh, for the sea, and the ocean does not trespass beyond whatever God decrees in any given moment uh, that the ocean can travel onto the land. In Job 38, God is speaking, and he's speaking about himself, and he says, "'Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb?' And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt in doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. God decrees, this is how far you can go, and you can go no farther. So last uh, Sunday, the ocean went exactly as far inland as God decreed. Not one inch farther uh, than what he would have uh, intimately allowed in that situation. In Jeremiah 5.22, God says, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an ancient decree, so that it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. Uh, God sets the decree how far the ocean and the seas can travel. And by the way, thousands of times every day, waves are, in a sense, almost rebelliously coming on the shore, and then they retreat back. They can go no farther than what God allows uh, those proud waves to, to travel onto land. So God sets the boundaries and the ocean. Think about how powerful the ocean is, the waves and so forth. God is the one who controls the sea uh, and sets the boundaries for it. We know even from, uh, from the Gospels the power that God has over the seas. In Matthew 8, 27, after Jesus commanded the winds and the waves to be still, the disciples marveled, and they were saying, even the winds and the sea obey Jesus. Wow, he just speaks a word, and, and it seems like the waves of the sea obey him. 
And they worshipped him, according to Matthew, as a result of this enormous power uh, that he had displayed in giving a command and them seeing the sea obey his command. So it's good for us to remember that God is uh, not some distant deity, but he is intimately involved in controlling all of the natural processes that we interact with in our life that either do us good or at times cause uh, injury to us. I have no doubt that, you know, there were a lot of non-believers who were killed by the tsunamis and there were Christians that were injured uh, by the destruction and even killed by the destruction. God is in control and that's the teaching of the Bible, all right? However, we don't want to stop there. I think if we stop there, um, we, we would be woefully kind of cheating ourselves of a fully biblical view. We need to advance one step farther to a third truth, and that is that earthquakes and tsunamis happen because the earth is suffering from the effects of the fall. Uh, the earth is suffering from the effects of the choice that we all made in Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them, you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. What happened was not only when they partook of the tree and we partook of it through them, not only did they die and all of us are going to die as a result of our sin, but the teaching of the Bible is as a result of the choice they made, everything around them dies as well. God could have said, you look around, every living thing you see is going to die if you partake of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even as a result of the choice we all made in Adam and Eve to sin and rebel against God and go beyond what he had provided, as a result of that, even the earth itself is going to die and it's even dying now. Our earth is passing away and is in the throes of death. And the day will come when the earth does pass away uh, and it will be replaced with a new earth. That's something that would have never happened had we never sinned and brought our transgression upon this planet. In Romans 8, 22, Paul says, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now as a result of the sinful choice that we made. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the earth was altered. It began to grow thorns and thistles, and, and it was not as productive as it was before. And by the sweat of Adam's brow, he was going to be able to harvest crops. The earth was altered. The earth's economy was changed as a result of our sin in Adam and Eve. And earthquakes, tsunamis, these are things that would not be happening if the earth were in the perfectly created order as it existed before the fall. Because of sin, the earth is broken. Tectonic plates are broken. They're busted up. And earthquakes happen. Tsunamis happen as a result of the fact that our earth is in the throes of death. In fact, listen to this vivid passage in Isaiah 24. Um, in Isaiah 24, verse 19, God says, The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall, never to rise again. And that's exactly what happened this week. The earth tottered on its axis. These are merely the early throes of a dying 
earth that is staggering in the throes of death as a result of the transgression that we have brought upon it. The day will come, as I said a moment ago, when the earth will be destroyed in 2 Peter 3.10. Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The earth as we know it will be destroyed one day and be replaced with a new earth. And speaking of that coming destruction and... um, and so forth. What we witnessed last Sunday, the carnage, the death, the devastation, the tragedy that has ensued uh, from that, I know as I've kind of looked at that this week, it's caused my mind to just look into the future at greater cataclysms that are awaiting this planet and those who live upon it. And I think that would be a good fourth truth to remember that a day is coming when far greater earthquakes and tsunamis will be coming upon the world. Just read the book of Revelation and you will see the earth uh, in its gasping throes of death uh, as it just seems like all of the natural processes are not going to be functioning the way that they always seem to have have functioned. And even in Revelation chapter 16, uh, right before the second coming of Jesus, the last bowl of judgment is open and announced, and it says in verse 18 of Revelation 16, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. And the cities of the nations fell, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. One of the things that I feel educated about this week is whenever I would read a passage like this in the book of Revelation and imagine earthquakes, I would always think of earthquakes happening on land where people live. This is talking about a worldwide earthquake that's not only going to be happening on land, but it's going to be happening under the ocean as well. And so no doubt that's going to create tidal waves and tsunamis, the likes of which the world has never seen. And even this past week with some of the... um, tsunami waves, there are literally islands that existed before last Sunday that are gone. They've just disappeared. They've fled away. And a day is coming when an earthquake is going to rock this planet like the world has never seen. And as a result of the quaking and the movement of the earth, along with the cataclysmic tsunamis and tidal waves that are created by the shock waves of that, it says in verse 20, every island is going to flee away. The mountains uh, are going to disappear. Just imagine the magnitude of that. And even right after these events are happening, if you continue to read, there will be hailstones, 100 pounds, that are falling uh, from the heavens upon the inhabitants of the earth. Will they bow the knee at that point and say, wow, God, you are powerful? No, it says they blaspheme God because of the severity of these events that came upon or that will come upon the inhabitants of the earth. And so uh, what has happened, yes, it's apocalyptic in a sense, it's of biblical proportions, but it is in no way comparable to the greater cataclysms that still await the world in the coming period of tribulation prior to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, A fifth truth that would be good for us to remember is that the whole human race deserves only God's unrelenting wrath. Guys... I think we would all do well with events like this, and even when you're on the freeway and someone cuts you off, 
or you're having a bad day and things don't seem to go your way, take your train of thought and go to the point where you're telling yourself, you know what I deserve? I deserve hell. I deserve God's eternal wrath. And you know what? Every day we should be asking God why. We should be saying, God, why? Why are you letting this happen? This doesn't make sense. But what we should be asking that question about is all the good things that happen to us. None of us deserves to even take in another breath of air. We don't deserve to see the sunrise this morning. We don't deserve to see the beautiful clouds in the sky. We don't deserve the food that we eat and the pleasures that we enjoy of family and friends. We all deserve to be writhing in outer darkness under the heavy hand of the wrath of God forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. That's where we deserve to be right now. And it is a staggering miracle of immense proportions, a miracle of love and grace that we're even gathered here today. And all of us should really be in a sense of awe and questioning, God, why would you let this happen to me? Why would you let this good thing come my way when I have been a rebel against you and I've sinned against you and I deserve your wrath? People who are saying, God, why would you let this happen to me and I deserve better? Those are people that don't understand the gravity of sin and the gravity of their sin, the sins that they've committed against the God of heaven, a holy and a righteous God. And so you know what? What's happened in Southeast Asia, I deserve for all that to happen to me and so much more. We deserve these things because of our sin. Well, there's a sixth truth to remember, uh, and that is that we have a God who himself has experienced death and suffering in this world. And I'll tell you, I found a huge amount of comfort in this as I did back in 2001, September the 11th. We do not have a deity who is just up in heaven capriciously making decisions. Okay, I'll just wreak havoc here and do this and that. And, you know, they send. And so, you know, they deserve what's coming to them. And then God is always in heaven and separate and detached from the agonies and the suffering of the evil of this world. Folks, the unique contribution that Christianity makes that sets it apart from any other religion, and this is only one of the unique things, is that we have a God who stepped out of heaven and he left his immunity to pain in heaven, came into this world of pain and suffering and death and tears and loss and sorrow and weeping and crying and hunger and thirst. He came into this world and he himself became the worst victim of suffering and loss and evil that the world has never seen. We actually have a God in heaven that when we go to heaven and we see Jesus in his glory, if we look closely, we will see that he's scarred. We have a God who bears wounds even to this very day in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. Uh, and there's something about the scars of Jesus, the wounds of Jesus, that uh, enable him to minister to our wounds, that we do not have a God who is detached from the agonies and the suffering of this world. In fact, um, one of the things that I always pull out when a tragedy happens um, is an excerpt from a book by John Stott on the cross of Christ, a riveting passage. And the first time I read it uh, many years ago, I highlighted it and I told myself I can never forget this. And I need to always come back to this whenever any tragedy strikes. And I've done that ever since then. And listen to what he says here. He says, I myself could never believe in God were it not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? 
I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile plays round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I have had to look away, and in imagination I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He goes on to say this, he laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us and our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification for such a world as ours. The beauty of this is that John Stott does not try to answer the question of why. He says, there's still a question mark. Guys, I don't know why God allowed Adam and Eve to sin in the garden when he could have stopped them. I don't know why God has allowed evil into this world and all of the suffering that has come upon this world as a result of that. I don't understand that. There's some things the scripture says that offer uh, partial explanations of that. But guys, the rules of this game go way beyond me. And there is still a question mark. And I don't have the answer to that question. But you know what? It's very comforting to have that other image, the cross, that we stamp over that question mark. And we reflect on the cross and the suffering of Jesus and say, you know what? I don't know why God has allowed things to happen the way that they have. I don't know why he has allowed suffering and evil into the world, but I do know that I have a God who himself bears the wounds of suffering and loss. He came into this world and made himself the ultimate victim of suffering, evil, and loss that has ever been seen in the history of the world. He knows what it's like to be hungry, to be thirsty. Um, he knows what it's like to be rejected, to be spat upon, to be slapped in the face, to be punched in the face, to have a crown of thorns crushed down upon his brow. He knows what it's like to be whipped with a vicious cat of nine tails against his back, times without number. He knows what it feels like to have nails driven through his hands and through his feet and to be mocked and ridiculed by a crowd as he hangs there naked upon a cross, utterly rejected by God and man. He knows what it's like to be rejected uh, by our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father was suffering as well. Uh, as he beheld his son being smitten in this way, according to the providence of God to bring us salvation. God, our Father, knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to lose one's precious and only son. All of these things have been experienced by the God that we love and the God that we worship. And we can find comfort in this theological and historical reality. There's a seventh and final truth that would be good for us to remember, and that is that God desires that everyone in Southeast Asia come to repentance and faith in Jesus. Um, guys, we need to, um, um, to really think about this, that God, uh, the desire of his heart is that people be saved 
in this part of the world that is full of so much um, decadence uh, and spiritual blindness. And just two passages to remind you of. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the God that we love, the God that we worship, a God who does not delight uh, in the perishing of the wicked, a God who desires for all to come to repentance, to the knowledge of the truth, and to experience salvation through Jesus. And so with all those seven truths in mind, that kind of leads to the second response. The first response to this tragedy is that we should remember these truths. The second response, uh, folks, is that we should pray for the salvation of souls and for Christians who labor uh, to this end, all right? Uh, and that's how we all should be praying. Do you realize that uh, a handful of the countries that have been most severely affected by the tsunamis are countries that make the top 50 list in the most anti-Christian countries in the world today, the heaviest persecutors um, of the church. Uh, these are countries that are, in some cases, uh, belligerently against Christianity and what it stands for. And uh, God bringing these countries through this tragedy to their knees. Uh, guys, this is the time of all times for us to be praying earnestly that God will open hearts uh, to the love of Jesus and that they will be drawn to salvation. If we know God at all and we learn about who our God is based on Scripture, our God longs for these individuals to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we should be praying to this end. A third response, um, we need to move quickly here, uh, is that we should suffer with our Asian brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, even though we're detached from what happened geographically, we really should be suffering. And I get this from 1 Corinthians 12, 26, where Paul says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. There are members of the body of Christ that are suffering greatly as a result of this tragedy. And we do not well to just kind of be emotionally disconnected from the, uh, from the pain that our brothers and sisters in the Lord are experiencing in Southeast Asia. So we need to be attuned to what is going on, trying to assimilate it and even praying and asking God um, how we can best respond to this in a way that truly benefits our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the cause of Christ in Southeast Asia. There's a fourth and final response, guys, and we'll close with this. Uh, we can give to Christians in Asia to meet their personal and ministry needs. Uh, you know, there's been a real outpouring of generosity and giving. I mean, over $2 billion has been pledged uh, by foreign governments um, uh, around the world, and corporations here in the United States and in other places around the world are donating millions uh, upon millions of dollars. Private citizens in this country and abroad are giving uh, so much money, and many are giving small amounts, but all of it together amounts to millions upon millions of dollars. And uh, perhaps you have been thinking, man, I, I, I want to do something, but who do I give to? And that really is a dilemma uh, that we have. And I'll just share with you my thinking uh, that I think has some biblical precedent. Um, I personally am not comfortable giving to a secular relief organization. Um, 
that's going to minister relief and not do so in the name of Jesus. To me, that's not the most strategic way uh, to really help the cause of Christ uh, in a tragedy such as this. What I want to do is give money that will go to Christians. Remember, we're told in the Scripture to do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. I want to give money that goes to Christians that goes to churches and Christian organizations in Southeast Asia, not only to meet the needs of the churches there and the believers there, but that also serve to provide for them the funds they need to do outreach and to provide relief, to where they're the ones providing relief because they're there, and we're merely equipping them and enriching their ability to be showing the love of Jesus and doing so in the name of Jesus explicitly. And there's various charitable organizations like Samaritan's Purse, uh, even the IFC. I really appreciate what they're doing here because it addresses this need that we're talking about, uh, that if we give our funds to the Asian Relief Fund that you find written about on the insert, uh, they have contacts there. They know churches and missionaries that are there in Southeast Asia and uh, also Christian organizations and so forth, and they're going to disperse those funds to Christians and to churches and to missionaries and to Christian organizations who will explicitly be ministering relief and doing so explicitly in the name of Jesus. You think about, um, I think Mike made reference to this earlier, in, uh, in the New Testament there was a famine uh, in Israel, there was a famine in Jerusalem, right? So Paul goes around and he's raising funds uh, to provide relief. But who is he providing relief for? It's for the church of Jerusalem. It's for the saints of Jerusalem. Paul wanted those funds to go to the church of Jerusalem so that the church of Jerusalem can then make determinations about how those funds will be dispersed. All right? Uh, he wasn't just raising money for every, all the citizens of Jerusalem. He was raising funds to go to the church of Jerusalem, knowing that the church of Jerusalem would take those funds and provide relief for the brothers and sisters in that church. And no doubt Paul was also aware that the church would use those funds as an outreach and ministry to the family and the friends and the neighbors of the unsaved fellow citizens in Jerusalem who needed relief provided for them as well. And as a ministry of the Jerusalem church, these funds are being used uh, to provide relief and assistance explicitly in the name of Jesus. And so we can give to organizations, churches, and missionaries such as this and the IFCA, and no doubt other organizations as well, uh, provide assistance for Christians like us who do want to provide help and relief, but we want to give to ministries that are going to provide relief explicitly in Jesus' name and for the furtherance of the cause of Jesus. Again, and I'll close with this, some of these countries are great persecutors of the church, and under other circumstances, such people and ministries would not be allowed in, but they're not being picky right now. And this is an incredible open door. It really is an incredible open door for Christian ministries to come into these areas that normally are closed to the gospel and closed to these organizations to provide real, tangible relief. And imagine what can be done for the cause of Christ if these ministries are properly financed and able uh, to, minister, to minister so profoundly 
in the name of Jesus and to further his cause. So these are uh, things to be thinking about as uh, we continue to process the events that have happened over this past week and will continue uh, to unfold in uh, the days and the weeks to come. I want to encourage you guys to come back uh, tonight because um, what we're going to be doing tonight, last week we broke up into small groups and we focused our attention on discussing and processing the Word of God in community with one another. Tonight, we're going to focus on another value in a small group setting, and that is the value of prayer. And uh, not only just the benefit of kind of breaking up and experiencing praying together, um, but, but also tonight with the prayer time that we do have, we really are going to want to give our heart and our attention uh, to praying uh, through what's happening in Southeast Asia and praying that the word of the Lord will prevail and just travel forth unhindered and mightily and that thousands upon thousands of people uh, will be saved. Praying as well for God to give us direction about how, uh, how he might want to use us and our resources and funds uh, to uh, be used uh, for his kingdom in Southeast Asia. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm just reminded of what God says in Jeremiah 5 where he says, speaking of his control of the seas, and guys, it is a mercy that the seas, if God just let his controlling hand off, we'd all be wiped out in a second. But God says, do you not fear me? I have control over these things. And the appropriate response is a response of worship to a God whose wisdom is unsearchable, his ways are literally past our finding out. And we are very small in his sight. And the appropriate response is that of worship and praise to our God. Just take a moment to speak to the Lord and respond as the Spirit of God prompts you. Father, we, uh, we stand in awe of your power and your might. We also find security in you. I know many have been asking this week in our country that could the same thing happen to us, and if it did, how prepared could we be? God, we could go crazy if we fretted over all the possibilities. And I just... I think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 46, that God is our refuge, our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. God, we are vulnerable every moment of every day, and we live and move at your will and your pleasure. Just help us to find our confidence and our peace in you and not in any steps that we take to make ourselves secure. And we thank you, Lord, that we do have a God such as you of this authority, power, sovereignty, and also compassion and love as you have entered this world of ours and you yourself have suffered pain and loss and shedding your blood on the cross. And help us today to, to look upon your wounds and know that you have been there and that you have wisdom beyond our understanding and just to trust you. Give us wisdom, Lord, as we seek to know how best to respond to those asking questions, to give a defense of our faith, and give us wisdom, each of us as individuals and us as a church, as to what we can do to help in this situation of dire need. We give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.